Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brandon Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 25th episode of the Not A Cast entitled The Seed Is Strong. An analysis of the Game of Thrones Edward 5, in which Ned investigates the death of John Aaron and then gets a lesson in paranoia from Littlefinger. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden, J., and Wolfman Zack. As we say every week, thank you, gentlemen, very, very much. Thank you, as always. And our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. So we got some feedback on the podcast about some of the questions we have. And people generally love the questions and we love the questions too and answering them. But some people have said that, you know, three or four questions is a lot of questions for you guys to do on in one sitting. It kind of like detracts a little bit from actually talking about the chapter itself. And we appreciate the feedback. And, you know, Emma and I both kind of agree that is a lot to be doing, you know, 40, 30, 40 minutes of questions about different topics. So in light of that, we're going to try and pare back some of our questions and answer maybe one to two questions every week. We do appreciate, again, all of you folks sending in your questions. We are going to try to align your questions with specific chapters we think would best fit with it. And in that light, our first and only question for this week comes from Sir Thomas H., who asks, I want to start by saying I continue to love your podcast and to keep up the good work. Thank you. I had a question regarding your guys' opinions on the Game of Thrones show. You see, I started off watching the first four seasons of the show, and then after season four, I just had to know what happened next. So I read all the Song of Ice and Fire books and novellas. Then season five came along, and I was left dissatisfied with where the show went with certain plot lines, Doran Stannis. And as the show went on, my disappointment only grew. Granted, there were still good episodes of the show, like Hardhome and The Battle of the Bastards, but I couldn't help but think that there was a sharp quality drop from season four to season five and onwards. So my question is, do you think there was a quality drop, and do you think it has anything to do with the fact that George R. R. Martin stopped writing episodes after season four? Also, if you could change one plot line in the show, what would it be? Sorry for the long question, and again, keep up the great work. Not a long question. It's actually a really, really good question. I'll turn it over to you, Emmett. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. That's a good question, and I also agree. I think there's been a noticeable drop-off in quality since season three, season four. As he says, there's still some very solid individual episodes. Obviously, the cast is still great. I still enjoy the costumes and the music and the sets and all that great stuff. But I think the structure of the scripts and the quality of the dialogue has taken a dip. I think part of that is that George R. R. Martin is no longer writing individual episodes, but it's not like he was ever writing more than one a season anyway. So right. even even the, the quote-unquote good seasons don't have an overwhelming influence of George R. R. Martin. I think a lot of it is that the showrunners are running out of material directly from the books to work with, so they're kind of left to their own devices, and of course they're, they're talented dudes who've written good stuff before, but the perfect tight structure of the storylines and the kind of revelations they lead to that you see plotted out in the first three books, they don't really have those to work with anymore. They didn't really fully adapt a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons, I think sometimes for defensible reasons, other times less so, so <laughs> again, you'd... You don't have the source, the strength of the source material to work with. You know, I'm not saying George R. R. Martin is this untouchable artist god just above all us mortals, but <laughs> there is there is like an intricacy to his plots where it's kind of like Jenga. If you start pulling pieces out, it starts to fall apart. 
And I yes. think that I think we're seeing a little bit of that with the recent seasons of Game of Thrones is if you take out certain elements, what's left isn't necessarily special or as special as it used to be. And I think also, you know, they're, the Game of Thrones, the TV show is its own beast now. It's its own machine. So it's not quite just trying to be an adaptation. It's it's a, it's, it's, its own creature, its own kind of tones and habits. And I like that a little less than I like more or less strict adaptation of A Song of Ice and Fire, I have to admit. But that might just be personal preference. As far as the one storyline I would change go, I'm, I'm caught between Stannis and Dorne two storylines that Sir Thomas cited. Obviously, have my we have our personal feelings for Stannis that I would <laughs> like to see assuaged. I'd love to have given him a meteor role, let him stick around a little more on the storyline. But in terms of semi-objectively what really needs the work done, that's clearly Dorne. I think they either should have... Yes torn that down and started again, which I guess is, you know, it's unrealistic in terms of budget or just not done it at all if it was going that poorly. Yeah, I, I agree with that, that Dorne or the Iron Islands plot should have been abandoned one or the other. And in my yeah. opinion, it should have been Dorne that should have been abandoned. The reason why is that we have this setup from the Iron Islands in season one, season two and beyond where you have Theon and I guess Yara in the show who are occupying roles in the story and Balon Greyjoy and his invasion doing the same work in the Northern plot line and, and kind of encasing Robb Stark in this aura of doom and defeat that he will suffer at the Red Wedding. That all works really well. So I think the Iron Island plot should have been the one that should have stayed. It still is kind of a little bit frustrating at one level how long Balon Greyjoy is alive in the books or rather in the show. And that is an interesting Dynamic, I guess, because you introduce Euron Greyjoy in season six, which would be kind of the Winds of Winter timeline. And I'm not sure that Euron Greyjoy should have been introduced then. I think he probably should have been introduced probably somewhere around season three, perhaps even season four. So we have this buildup of him as, as a character. I can see that they rethought Euron Greyjoy to be not so much this psychedelic monster, almost endgame villain, but more of a pirate, have fun kind of villain type figures we've talked about in previous episodes. In terms of whether George R. Martin's abandonment of, not abandonment, but as, in terms of George <laughs> R. Martin's, <laughs> yeah, not abandonment. I don't want to start rumors or anything like that. Um, in terms <laughs> of like dramatic. George R. Martin, you know, right. In, in terms of like George R. Martin taking his hands off of the show in order to focus on writing The Winds of Winter. Sure. I do think that has had some consequences for the show for sure. But I think, Emmett, you're spot on is that they didn't really adapt A Feast of Crows and A Dance with Dragons. Something that George has said is that he would have preferred to have seen a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons become three or four seasons of TV material. Instead, they pared it down significantly down to essentially one season's worth of material with some scattered plot elements in season four and season six. But I think that George has a point when you look at why Dorne didn't work, why some of the other plot lines, especially in the north with Ramsay Bolton and Sansa, why that wasn't necessarily as satisfying of a plot. Because Again, like Emmett said, there's an intricacy to the plotting that George worked into A Feast of Crows and A Dance of Drag that will culminate in The Winds of Winter in the early parts of the books with the battles of ice and fire occurring in Marine and Winterfell. But also there's a part of me that wonders whether David Benioff and Dan Weiss, as great of showrunners than they are, and I do applaud them for what they do, whether they didn't totally get A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons and how they only... They've talked about in the past how they were really excited to get to the Red Wedding. Like, that was the one focal point in the story that they were really excited to get to because that was the most shocking moment in that they imagined what the TV show would be. And it was shocking. I mean, if you see all the reaction videos that came after Season 3, Episode 9, you can't help but see that as an incredibly shocking and 
moment and the people just kind of lost their fucking minds when they saw the Red Wedding and saw that Rob Stark and Catelyn were killed. But when they got to Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons, it seems like they were like, I don't quite get why Marine is the way that it is. I don't quite understand the Northern plot line. We're going to kind of plug and play with different characters that already exist, which is, you know, it's fine to do that, irrespective of whether it works in season five, season six, and season seven of Game of Thrones. But there are consequences too. I think the biggest consequence is the one I started with, which is Dorne. Dorne was adapted because essentially Brian Cogman, who is one of the writers from Game of Thrones, really wanted to happen. And, you know, I applaud Brian Cogman for for wanting Dorne on on screen because Dorne is a great setting in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. And I love the Dornish plotline very, very much in both those books. But how to adapt Dorne in the existing show storyline didn't work. You cut Quentin, you cut Ariane. And you cut Aegon, too, before that, seemingly. So none of these plots seemingly have any resonance to them, to the effect that, you know, they essentially killed off every single Dornish character by the by season seven, right? There's not any, none of the Dornish characters are still alive. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, right? I believe you're correct about that. The, I think this Elaria, with Elaria and the Sand Snakes gone, that's it. Yeah. So it seems like they were like, okay, we'll, 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 we'll try it didn't work so they're like okay now we just gotta kind of you know just cut the cut them right off and so you have Dora Martell Ario Hota Tristane Martell dying in season six then you have the Sand Snakes and Ilaria Sand dying in season seven and you know you really needed that Quentin or Ariane character preferably both to anchor the Dornish storyline because it helps to create compelling scenes compelling characters but it also feeds into the main story in the Song of Ice and Fire and the downfall of Cersei Lannister as we were going to see in the Winds of Winter most likely and the rise of Aegon Targaryen and the coming conflict between Dorne and Daenerys in the Winds of Winter and or A Dream of Spring so again Dorne was probably the thing that I would have just cut altogether I do think that they didn't quite get why A Feast of Crows and A Dance of Dragons were compelling books, and they kind of wrote around that and wrote some of the key scenes from the books, but they didn't have quite the buildup that they had in from earlier seasons. Agreed, sir. I think if you're not going to do where the Dornish plot leads in the in the books, or where it's seeming to lead with Quentin and with young Griff and the whole tragedy Dance of the Dragons 2.0 thing we've been seeing build up since A Feast for Crows, if you're not going to do all that, there's really not much point to doing the Dornish plot on the show. Because as you right. say, then it lacks all resonance. It lacks all momentum. It doesn't have anywhere to go. Kind of saw them hastily snip those threads in season six and season seven, as you say. I also agree, you can kind of tell from how they've talked about it, that the Red Wedding was really what they were building up to. It's something they wanted to put on television and make their name with and I think they did a great job and I would be excited about that too if I were adapting these books and to be fair Feast and Dance are not really cinematic in the same way the first three books are there are some exceptions to that but they're much more kind of interior and literary and they're focused in large part on smaller and new characters, and I, of course, think it works wonderfully, but it doesn't necessarily translate to the screen. On the other hand, if I had to pick an element in A Feast for Crows I thought would translate to the screen, it would be Ariane, of all people, the a character who literally does sex position, uh, and a character who I think, you know, is, is very kind of vivid and cinematic and has big emotions and big monologues, so I think she'd work very well, so I'm disappointed we didn't get that. But uh, thank you, Sir Thomas, for the question. We're going to be interested to see, obviously, how the final season of Game of Thrones goes when it comes out, as we've recently learned, in the first half of next year. And I'll be curious to see if Dorne is so much as mentioned. (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) And if you guys are interested, again, in our Patreon, 
folks who contribute $10 or more a month have the ability to ask us questions, but those who contribute $5 a month are, have the ability to listen to our special episodes. So last week we released our episode on Sir Barrison Summit, which was a Patreon-only episode. Hope you guys have enjoyed that. But there are other episodes out there as well. Our most recent one is on Volantis, but we also have episodes on the fate of Stannis Baratheon and also on why is the Winds of Winter taking so goddamn long. So we will be releasing a monthly Patreon-only episode. We appreciate everyone's kind contributions. And now let's talk about a Game of Thrones editor five. So this is the shortest chapter of a Game of Thrones so far, and it opens mid-conversation to Grand Maester Pycelle stating that John Aaron's death was very, 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 very sad. It's so very sad, Lord Stark, just so sad. Yeah, okay, Pycelle, sure. Methinks thou <laughs> protest thou protesteth too much. Anyways, Pycelle says he'll tell Ned what happens to John Aaron as best he can. He then asks Ned if he likes some iced milk sweetened with honey. Ned thinks, yeah, sure, sounds tasty. And then Pycelle puts his drink order in with the serving girl. Possibly buying some time as he tries to think of some plausible lies he can throw at Ned, Pycelle launches into a discussion of the science of the seasons of Westeros. The small folk think that the last year of summer is always the hottest, but it's not always so. It certainly feels that way, though, especially on a hot day like today in, in King's Landing. Pycelle discusses some history about himself, how King Makar's summer was hotter than this one, and this led people to think the great summer was at hand, but it wasn't. In the seventh year, the summer broke, and there was a short fall and a horrible winter that fell thereafter on Westeros. Ah, but those summers were so great for young Pycelle and Old Town, walking in the gardens, arguing about the gods and those smells, perfume and sweat, melons ripe to bursting, peaches and pomegranates, nightshaded moon bloom. But Pycelle intones that Ned didn't come to hear an old man's tales of his youth. And what was Ned here for again? Ah, yes, John Aaron's death, about that. Pycelle claims that John Aaron hadn't been himself for quite a while, and then he got sick. But the day before he got sick, he came to Pycelle and asked after a book. The next morning, he had significant stomach pain. John's maester was purging him, but eventually Pycelle himself went to John Aaron. He dismissed Maester Coleman, that is John Aaron's maester, and that is something that he feels that Lysa will never forgive him for. And he's a fucking liar about that. And he tried to, quote-unquote, care for him, but it was, quote-unquote, too late. When Pycelle knew that the end was at hand, he gave John Aaron milk with a poppy to ease his passing. Ned asked whether John Aaron had final words. Pycelle recounts that he said Robert several times, not knowing whether he meant Robert Baratheon or his son Robert Aaron. And his final words were, the seed is strong. The next morning, John Aaron died. Very sad. Ned then gets to the heart of his inquiries after John Aaron's death. Was there anything unnatural about John Aaron's death? Was he poisoned? Well, that throws Pycelle in his story for a loop. Pycelle mumbles about how John's death was no stranger than the other that he encountered. When Ed replies that Lysa thought that John's death was a natural, Pycelle states that, yeah, Lysa would. She's crazy, after all. Especially after all the stillbirths. Little editorial note, Pycelle is a fucking dick here, though not altogether <laughs> wrong. But what about that poison? Pycelle says it's possible, but he doesn't think so. John Aaron was beloved by all. Only monsters would dare to murder such a beloved figure. I have heard it said that poison is a woman's weapon, Ned replies quietly. Ooh, then. Oh, boy. Pycelle gets all conspiratorial. Women, cravens, and eunuchs use poison. But hey, BTW, Ned, did you know that Varys is a eunuch and he's from Lice? Don't trust that dude. But Ned already knows. He doesn't trust Varys anyways. Hates this look and hates the smell. Anyways, Ned, having gotten something resembling an answer on John Aaron's death, makes his way for the door, but just before he leaves, he asks if he can borrow the book that John Aaron wanted from Pycelle. The Grand Maester says, sure, once he finds it, he'll send it straight away to Ned. You have been most courteous, Ned told him. Then almost as an afterthought, he said, one last question if you would be so kind. You mentioned that the king was at Lord Aaron's bedside when he died. I wonder, was the queen with him? 
Um, no, she was, uh, you know, away with her dad. Um, he was going back to, he was going back to Casterly Rock, and, uh, yeah, and, uh, but Pycelle will shit you not, he was very, 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 very sad to have sent that bird to the Queen to announce John Aaron's death. Ned finally takes his leave with Pycelle, calling after him that he's here to serve. This causes Ned to wonder who Pycelle actually serves. Spoiler warning, it's the Lannisters. On his way back to his chambers, Ned comes across Arya, who's balancing herself on one foot, practicing as a water dancer. Arya states that water dancers can stand for hours on any toe and never fall. And this leads to Arya asking if Bran will come and live with them in King's Landing now that he's awake after his fall. Not for a long time, Ned replies. But what's Bran going to be doing now that he's a cripple? Well, Ned replies, he'll have time to figure that out. He has many years to kind of figure that out. Ned thinks back to when word arrived that Bran had woken and how he had taken his girls out to what passes for a King's Landing godswood. It's, an, it's a whole acre of elm, adder, and black cottonwood trees overlooking the black water. And in the middle stood the heart tree, an enormous oak. The three Starks knelt before the heart tree and gave thanks to the gods for Bran's survival. But only Ned made it through the whole night's vigil. When Sansa woke, she dreamed she saw Bran smiling. That's kind of beautiful. I like that a lot. Sure Flashing is, back buddy. To, yeah, man, it really is. Flashing back to the present, Arya remembers that Bran was going to be a knight. Can he still be a knight? No, Ned replies. Yet someday he may be a lord of a great holdfast and sit on the king's council. He might raise castles like Bran and the Builder, or sail a ship across the sunset sea, or enter your mother's faith and become the High Septon. But he's never going to run beside his wolf, or have sex, or hold his son in his arms. Let no one accuse Ned of not close-holding his pathos in his internal narration. But can Arya become a king's counselor at High Septon? <laughs> no, child. You're going to marry a king, rule his castle, and your sons might become knights, princes, lords, and even the High Septon. Damn, Ned, that's fucking harsh. But mm-hmm. Ned, but Arya has, but Arya has a ready reply. No, that's Sansa. She gets back into position and keeps practicing her water dancer moves. Ned then arrives back at his chambers, and immediately he's told that Littlefinger requests an audience with him. Ned heads out to his solar to meet him and sees that Lord Baelish is perched on a window seat watching the Knights of the King's Guard practice at swords in preparation for the hand's tourney. Littlefinger japes about Barristan being dim, fact check, true, and Ned remarks how Barristan <laughs> is valiant and honorable, the only dude Ned respects here in King's Landing. Ned asks why Littlefinger's in King's Landing, why he's here to help, as always. He promised Cat after all, he says a little sly. Fuck you, Littlefinger. So mm-hmm. Littlefinger proceeds to, quote-unquote, help Ned. He tells Ned that four members of John Aaron's entourage stayed behind in King's Landing when Lysa Aaron headed back to the Vale. A pregnant kitchen girl, a stable hand, a pot boy, and serve you of the Vale, Lord Aaron's squire. Ned's pretty happy about this. The squire would know a lot more than the average Aaron retainer would. He'll go at once to interview him. Well, not so fast, Ned. Littlefinger instructs Ned to come to the window. He points to a boy honing an oil stone and tells Ned that he reports to Varys. And there's another man up at the wall. He reports to Cersei. You're being watched, Ned. You can't go to Sir Hugh. Do you have anyone you trust implicitly? Yes, Ned replies. In that case, I have a delightful palace in Valyria that I would dearly love to sell you. Ah, Littlefinger knows Nigerian prince email jokes. How nice. (laughs) Anyways, Littlefinger tells Ned to send this paragon of virtue to Sir Hugh, that way it'll be less noticeable. Seems like good advice to Ned. Lord Peter, I am grateful for your help. Perhaps I was wrong to distrust you. You are slow to learn, Lord Eddard. Distrusting me was the wisest thing you've done since you climbed off your horse. And that is the end of A Game of Thrones Eddard 5, a chapter that essentially serves as a bridge from Catelyn 2 and Eddard 4 and pushes the narrative onto the hand's attorney and Ned's investigation into John Aaron's death. What did you think, Emmett? Well, I hate to break your heart, Jeff, but this is probably my least favorite Ned chapter, (laughs) I have to admit. 
your last comment there kind of summed it up. It's more a bridge than it is a destination. True that. Yeah. And I didn't want to say this in my summary, but it is kind of my least favorite dead chapter yet as well. There's not a lot going on in it. It's more just pushing the plot forward and being like, okay, we need this one kind of bridging chapter to get on to what's going to happen at the hands tourney and and how Ned is going to be investigating John Aaron's death. But not a whole lot is going on in this chapter. Yeah, I've mentioned before a couple times that what I really love about Ned's chapters and his character in general is the emotional stuff. The internal things, his dreams, his flashbacks, his relationship with Robert, his thoughts about Liana, all the sorrow and mourning. And it's all wonderfully resonant stuff. Stuff that really, really hits me in the heart every time I read it. Yes. The actual plot of Ned's story for me is the least inter- interesting aspect. This kind of murder mystery investigation where he's trying to find out what went down with John Aaron. That stuff is is not the interesting part for me. Yeah, you know, I've mentioned, yeah. I mentioned a couple times in passing, but I may as well kind of lay out why that is. We already know about the twin cyst at this point, so there's not much suspense in terms of what it is he's looking for regarding the Lannisters. We kind of already know what it is. Right. We think we know who killed John Aaron. We'll get into a little later in the episode. We think it's Cersei, <laughs> and everything Pycelle says kind of really seems to back that up. The very fact that Ned asks about the Queen is supposed to be a clue to us, the readers. Ah, Ned thinks it was Cersei and we think it was Cersei. Now, we're wrong about that, of course. Right, right, right. But we don't find out that we're wrong until a storm of swords, and there's nothing really in Ned's plot that makes us think think he's wrong about that. We're pretty confident it was the Lannisters at this point going forward. So that's not particularly interesting or depthful within the context of Ned's plot. His investigation is not particularly intricate or labyrinthine. Like, I'm thinking of a a movie we both love, L.A. Confidential. Oh, yeah. Uh, One of my favorites. one of my one of the great modern detective movies, and part of the pleasure of a movie like that is just how intricate the plot is, and how many intertwining factions there are, how many backstories, how many red herrings, and it's all satisfying when it comes together at the end. Of course, when Guy Pierce shoots, who's it, James Cromwell? Yes, it's James yes. Cromwell in the back. Yeah, great ending, perfect climax. But part of the pleasure is how intricate and crazy those kind of plots can be in noir fiction, and it's not really here. It's, it's just a kind of one track of investigation that Ned's on. It's not yes. particularly complex. Nor does he really do anything hugely clever like noir detectives tend to do. There's no, there's not much, not many gambits. Like the closest Ned comes to doing anything clever really in this investigation is that he lets Tobo Mott keep speaking when he visits him in his armory in the next chapter. He like sits <laughs> silent and lets the dude give himself away, which, you know, that's that's clever, but it's not like when I think of like Tyrion pulling off his one, two, three gambit in the next book. Like that's fun. That's sure. that's interesting and intelligent. You're 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 kind of a step behind Tyrion the whole time until you realize at the end of that chapter what it is he's actually doing. I love that stuff. And Ned doesn't really have any any equivalent to that. Like in classic detective fiction, you're supposed to like do morally shady things along the way and compromise yourself. And Ned does kind of do that once he finds out the truth, but he doesn't really do it during the investigation. So there's nothing, nothing particularly hair raising going on there. This is, of course, purely personal, but something I really love about detective stories is just the aesthetic of it. Yes. The wrinkled shirts and the coffee mugs and everyone just kind of rubbing their forehead and smoking cigarettes contemplatively outside (laughs) the police station. Like uh, David Fincher's Zodiac, I think, is another good recent example of, I think, uh, a movie that really captures that style. And, of course, that doesn't carry over when Martin transfers the noir structure to Ed's Nedder's plot. Nettered, that's his name. Yeah, like it's 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 in the medieval setting, so you, you don't you don't have the you know the the trench coats and the just the facts, ma'am. The the no. that's, that's that surface appeal I get. Not everyone cares about that stuff, but for me, that's <laughs> a lot of what I love about detective fiction. And naturally, yeah. that doesn't carry over. No, you're you're right about that. That it doesn't. It's not quite a one for one 
noir fiction, but I'm going to actually kind of go against you because people want us to fight, man. They want us to like, <laughs> like be like each other's throats. And that I actually really like the, the mystery plot in, in Ned's chapters. I don't think it's that interesting here necessarily. Here's, here's my defense of, of it and why I enjoy it. And this is, again, just my personal preference is that I really like the idea of dropping in Joe Everyman in to be the detective. Like LA Confidential, take that example. You have three pretty solid detectives in, in various ways. You've got Ed Exley, you've got freaking Russell Crowe's character's name, I forget, Bud White, and then you've got uh, Jack Vincennes, who's played by the uh, now disgraced, uh, and rightfully so, Kevin Spacey. And they all bring different strengths into the investigation of what actually happened at the murder of the night owl and that ensuing heroin investigation that goes on and how there's a massive amount of corruption that's under, that's being undertaken in, in Los Angeles in the late 1940s. What I like about this story is that Ned is not one of these guys that's particularly gifted at investigation. And I like that Martin essentially keeps the plot a step ahead of Ned and as a result keeps the plot a step ahead of the reader. So we do know or we suspect that Cersei is the one who is responsible for poisoning John Aaron and that John Aaron John Aaron's death was unnatural. All of that is true. We don't see the Lysa reveal coming at any point. Now it's subtly hinted at here, something else we're going to be talking about towards the end of this podcast. But I do like the fact that we're kind of in as much of the dark as Ned is. And I do think I enjoy that idea of having this guy who's not a particularly gifted investigator who's investigating this plot. And, you know, it's kind of funny if you guys have read some of you folks who are listening, if you read if you read the Expanse novels, there's that sort of same dynamic going on where the, the lead investigator from the first book is not necessarily the most the, the most gifted detective and investigator. He's constantly the, the basically the villains of the story are constantly a step ahead of him until the end and I won't reveal anything about it beyond that because I think you guys should both read the books and, and watch the TV show but I do like that that same dynamic here for Ned here so I actually like the investigation I like the detective fiction that Martin integrates into a Game of Thrones in Ned's chapters I, I will s- concur with you on one point though as I do think it is more interesting when Tyrion Lannister is in it because Tyrion is a much more compelling interesting and also conspiratorial type character who kind of can understand the plots of Varas and Littlefinger and Pycelle and Cersei and all these individuals, whereas Ned doesn't. And I do like that kind of one, two, three reveal where Tyrion is constantly deceiving the different conspirators in King's Landing and then coming up, coming away with who is the actual informant against him, who is informing against him to Cersei Lancer. But that's just my very mini and probably not at all compelling defense of Ned's investigation in King's Landing. But yeah, I agree. This chapter is not necessarily the best part of that investigation. There's definitely more interesting stuff. Tobomat, Gendry and some of the other things that come around later on. Yeah, you make a good point, sir. It definitely gets more interesting later on. I think I think the whole Ned is a step behind thing works really well when Varus is in the room. When he's talking to Varus after the, the, the melee, I love that conversation. Yes. Uh, obviously, I love the conversation Arya overhears between Varus and Delirio. So th- that aspect of it works for me, but you, you don't feel quite feel the momentum. But uh, yeah, it, d- it definitely gets better as as you go. Yes. But yeah, it's. It, it, I think it is more than anything. It might just be that I'm comparing. I'm, I'm constantly comparing Ned's chapters in my head to Tyrion's chapters in Clash because I think they're sure. supposed to. They're paralleled yeah. in a lot of ways. And yeah, yeah and this aspect of it, I think, works better in Tyrion's chapters. But on the flip side, Tyrion doesn't have anything like that emotional stuff I was talking about earlier. There's no equivalent to the Ned Robert relationship 
or Ned's sorrowful flashbacks to Lyanna. Tyrion's chapters in Clash don't have any equivalent to that, really. So it's True. it's different strengths. True that. But, I mean, there's still lots to love about this chapter, even though it's not necessarily our favorite chapter in A Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. This is still a song of ice and fire, guys. Even even the least of the chapters <laughs> still have something to discuss, something worth recommending. And, yeah, I, I like the atmosphere that Martin sets at the beginning of this chapter you were talking about with the the heat, this this cloying, sticky, saturated heat that's just getting mm-hmm. in everywhere and is, is making Ned miserable. It's comparable to how Volantis is described by both Quentin and Tyrion when they get there in a dance with dragons. So if you haven't haven't listened to our Volantis episode over on the Patreon, <laughs> go check that out. Yes, please do. It's uh, the phrase is rich and ripe and rotted. That's how Quentin mm-hmm. describes Volantis, and I feel like that's that's how Ned would describe King's Landing at, at this point in his story. And that fits Ned perfectly, of course, because Ned is from the north. Ned is frequently associated with ice and cold, and he's constantly described saying things icily. And Jamie talks about his cold eyes. So, of <laughs> course, of course, uh, Martin would use heat as a way of emphasizing how uncomfortable Ned is. So that's that's it's a nice bit of atmospherics for sure. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. One of the scenes, and it's just a, a quick transition moment where Littlefinger comes in at the end of the chapter. And Ned talks about it. he's sweating through his silks and it's just you could feel that Ned is completely out of place, both in terms of the weather here in King's Landing, but also in terms of his attire. Because when we first meet Ned, he's in his his furs and his leathers and, you know, he's all man. He's all he's all North man, rather. And he's um, in here. He's adapting uncomfortably to these southern customs and to the southern weather. And it's just not nice for him and it's not nice for the reader too i mean you you can really feel the atmospherics there of how it's hot and it's sweaty and you have to wear these stupid clothes that don't do anything for you that they you just sweat through anyways but they're better i guess than wearing leathers and and furs but still it's it's just not a nice place to be in and the company is even worse exactly compared to how catalin described the heat in her chambers back at winterfell that was the good kind of heat you know that was like the nourishing heat of home the heat of the hearth the heat of family and Mm -hmm. uh, and of sex in that chapter this is a very different kind of heat it it makes me think of how danny describes viserys always going around in sweat stained silks and soiled yes. clothing that he's just holding on to in the Dothraki Sea. Ned feels like he's kind of in that position now. And yeah, like you say, the, the, the company certainly doesn't help things. Ned is, is having to barely tolerate this conversation with Pycelle. He clearly finds Pycelle as annoying as we do. And yeah, Pycelle <laughs> is going off on all these just this, these ponderous, pretentious pontifications. And he's like, he's... He's, he's, I noticed on reread of this chapter, he's making, he was always making these performative hand gestures, like he's always wringing his hands or <laughs> flailing his hand helplessly. He's just, he's just extremely... Stroking his beard. Exactly, exactly. That's what Jamie says in A Feast for Crows. I believe it's his first Feast of Crows chapter, that Pycelle was, was always wont to stroke his beard while he talked. Uh, he's a very just performative, kind of pretentious guy. He's one of those oh, characters yeah. in the series that claims to serve, but is, is really clearly thinks a huge amount of himself. Ooh, uh, and, you yeah. can, you, and you can see that in just how he talks. Like when he delivers his resume to Ned about like, I was I served under this king and this king and this king. And the only payoff for him telling Ned about that is just to say, so there's a lot of diseases, man. Diseases are weird and different and they're like snowflakes, Ned. And diseases are like snowflakes, man. Like, but it's clearly just an excuse for Pycelle to list his resume to Ned and remind yes. him how, how important I am. Or like when he says, uh, uh, Grand Maester Ethelemyr wrote that all men carry murder in their hearts. Like, really, Parcel, you're just, that's just name dropping. You're going to go full dinner party douchebag if I may quote Milton on, on this. It's like, yes, murder is a thing. People like murder. You don't need to quote any particular grand maester to make that point. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. It's, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. 
Oh no, no. I'm just saying it's Pycelle is super pretentious. Like every everything that comes across in this scene, the way he talks, the way he his hand gestures, his quotes, it's it's all it's all a performance. It's all Pycelle trying to impress Ned and impress himself as this very important person. Even though Ned walks out of the room thinking of Pycelle as this barely competent hack crony. So it it doesn't work. No, it, it doesn't work, but it's kind of funny too if you look at it and that you you talk about it being performative, and I wonder whether it's performative in terms of obscuring what happened to John Aaron, because we pick up in the start of this chapter, mid-conversation, where Pycelle is like, oh, you would want to know about John Aaron, his passing. Let me tell you what I know. And we don't actually get him talking about John Aaron's death until like three pages later, after he goes through his background, <laughs> arguing about the gods and all the great smells he smelled and all the kings he served. And he's like, oh, yeah, what were we talking about again? Ah, oh, yes, John Aaron. It's, it, it reads almost intentionally deceptive on Pycelle's part that yeah. he is essentially saying, look at me. I'm awesome. I'm all these wonderful things. Let's have a discourse on whether murder is a thing or not, because all men carry murder in their hearts. And what were you talking about again? Oh, yeah, John Aaron. Oh, yeah, he died naturally. You know, just, you know, that sort of thing. It basically obscures Pycelle's role in it. At the very, But at the very start of the chapter, he symbolizes kind of Pycelle being a fucking liar by having him over, have, this, have his servant bring in milk that is very, very sweet. And this is, in my opinion, it's, it's symbolizing that he's holding back key information to protect Cersei Lannister. And this kind of motif of lies being described as sweet and is seen in other parts mm-hmm. of Song of Ice and Fire, where you have, in later on in Danny's chapters in Game of Thrones, the wine cellar who attempts to poison her, talking about how sweet the, uh, the arbor wine is that he's trying to have her taste, and that is the poison wine that is being sent to kill her. And then Tyrion saying in a, in a Storm of Swords about give me sweet lies and keep your bitter truths. And then Theon in the vise of Reek saying in A Dance with Dragons that Reek was there too, he remembered, but he was a different Reek. He was a different Reek. A Reek with bloody hands and lies dripping from his lips, sweet as honey. So that idea of lies being sweet and so forth is, I think, is Martin is symbolizing that here with the oversweet milk. And the question is, what is Pycelle lying about? All those ponderous things that he's saying that he's trying to conceal the truth. What is he concealing from Ned? Well, that he actually did play a part in John Aaron's death, which we find out in The Clash of Kings when Tyrion interrogates him, where he says, quote, Yes, he whimpered. Yes, Coleman was purging, so I sent him away. The queen needed Lord Aaron dead. So she did not say so. Could not. Varys was listening, always listening. But when he looked, but when I looked at her, I knew. And then later on, and just a few lines down, but it was not me who gave him the poison, though I swear it. Varus will tell you it was the boy, his squire, Hugh, he was called. He must have done it. Surely ask your sister. Ask her. So, yeah, Pycelle is using all of these words to conceal the fact that he played a part in John Aaron's death, albeit a more passive one, and that he did not attempt to heal John Aaron, and he actually contributed to his eventual death. Even though Cersei, as we're going to find out, was not actually involved in his in his poisoning. Yeah, that's a great irony that Pycelle was taking part in a conspiracy that didn't exist. Like he was pick, yeah. picking up on cues that were not there. Although, who knows? Maybe Cersei was trying to communicate with her eyes to Pycelle to do something about it. Yeah, the Cersei's passivity where John Aaron is concerned is is just kind of a weird little note. But yeah, I agree. I think on on the one hand, he is deliberately pontificating and going on forever and being the the talkative old man who doesn't know when to shut up in order to <laughs> obscure uh, the results of the investigation from Ned. He's trying to keep the mystery of John Aaron's death just that, a mystery. On the other hand, of course, he does give Ned the book, so there's a limit to how actually effective <laughs> Pycelle can be as, as a conspirator. 
No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right in that Picel is an extremely bad and poor conspirator. And I'm, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later as well. But, you know, Picel being a douchebag and being this kind of intellectual douchebag who is the worst freaking douchebag, in my opinion, um, that does get a good contrast, though, when after Ned is in Picel's chambers, he comes across his daughter, Arya. Yeah, in the midst of kind of a cynical, depressing chapter, this is the, the heart of the chapter, a nice little oasis. It's not really, like, thematically connected to anything else that's going on in the chapter, to what's going on with Picel and Littlefinger. There's not really any links but it is it is a nice little respite from from the heat and from the assholes. Uh, this, this nice little moment with Ned and his little water dancer. Uh, it's clearly a follow up on their conversation in uh, Arya Two when they were talking about you know the lone wolf dies but the pack survives. It's not quite as intense a conversation, but it kind of still it's, it deals with the same ideas as that ch- uh, conversation where Ned is trying to get Arya to grow up in a difficult world and uh, educate her on how the world works. So you have, you know, Ned internally lists all the things Bran can't do now because of his injury. You know, it's a very sad monologue where he can't, you know, ride alongside his wolf. He won't hold a son of his own blood in his arms. But then, you know, reveals all the things that he can do. He can be a high septon. He can build ships and all this great stuff. But then the the punchline there is that Arya can't do any of these things. Right. Uh, even though even though she doesn't have Bran's disability, she's perfectly physically capable of, of doing even more than Bran could now. Uh, but she can't because in Westerosi society, there are such limited roles for women. Yeah. And you can again kind of see this as a critique from Martin that you know Bran at this point can't perform masculinity in the way he planned, the way he wanted. But in spite of that, he's still higher on the totem pole than Arya, who can perform those tasks and wants to, but is prevented. Yeah. So that's a great point. I think you're spot on. That's something I never noticed before is that Bran is physically incapacitated from doing these things. But Ned is extending that that incapacity to Arya simply by the fact that you know, she's a woman. The thing that I love about that, though, is that Ned is saying you can't you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. But Ned says what you can do is you can. You can birth children. You can your your sons will be knights and princes and high septons and all these things. And Arya's like, nah, nah, that that's for Sansa. You know that that's that's not me. That's Sansa. Yeah, that's great. And you can see a I think a comparison there to what Catelyn says to Brienne about you know I the men in my life are supposed to keep me safe. That's the social contract. I keep my kids safe, and then my my dad and my brother and my husband they're supposed to keep me safe. And of course, Catelyn says that as that social contract is starting to break down around her. But yeah. for Arya, it, it never made sense in the first place, as you can see with her, her sass back to Ned here about, no, that's Sansa. And I think it's it's interesting to compare this Arya-Bran situation in terms of what they're allowed to do, what they can do to Tyrion and Cersei. Whereas yes. uh, Tyrion obviously had that empathy for Bran, as we went over in Bran 4. Obviously, he is faces intense discrimination and hatred and suspicion uh, because of his size, but he he's still allowed to be in charge in a way that Cersei is not. He you know when he walks into the room with Tywin's letter, uh, the fact that Cersei doesn't want him to be there doesn't mean anything to the other people <laughs> in the room. They welcome him on the foundation of Tywin's authority, yes. and Cersei is kind of beaten herself against this cage that her gender has locked around her. So even though Cersei doesn't face anywhere near the same kind of prejudice uh, Tyrion does in terms of his size, she also has these limitations. She, again, is phys- more physically capable of, of being a knight and being in battle than Tyrion, but she would never would have been permitted to. Yeah. What I think is an interesting contrast 
between Cersei and Arya is, is that Cersei wants her cake and eat it too, because Mm -hmm. Cersei is very much the character who is like, because I'm a woman, I am, people don't, don't take me as seriously, but I'm going to become Tywin Lannister anew. But at the same time, she's also birthing princes and princesses and potential and queens and kings, as we're going to find out in Tom and Joffrey and Marcella. But she wants more than to simply be a mother. She wants to be the mother of princes and knights. And she also wants to be Tywin Lannister anew. Arya's, I think, is more grounded in being like, that's that's not my role is to take on, to be the mother of, of knights, lords, princes, high septons. My role is to be something else. And I think it's interesting, too, that Arya then immediately transitions back to performing her role as a water dancer. And I think that might be indicative of Arya's future story direction and, and that she immediately transitions from that conversation to becoming a water dancer. And that is something that will be a big part of Arya's story going forward throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. That's a great point. It's like she's saying she's rejecting what Ned says is her role and then she goes back to what her role is as far as right. she's concerned. Like, no, Dad, I'm not that Sansa. Let me go back to what I'm going to be doing, which is being a water dancer. And yeah, you got to love that image of her standing on one toe, wheeling on top of the steps, you know, her arms flailing. It's, it's, it's very cute, very childish. Again, as I've said many times before, I understand why Martin kind of wishes he'd aged up the young Starklings and att- intended to do so with the five-year gap. But there are moments of just pure childishness, which yes. sounds, like, it sounds like an insult, but I don't mean it as one. In, in, in the Marcella sense, where they're children, they're supposed to be childish. And I, I love that image of Arya just kind of flailing on the steps. It's just, it's just very cute. You can see why Ned grins. Yeah, you really do. Obviously, when Ned is talking about how, you know, Arya has a different role, how she's going to have to, you know, marry and have sons, partially that's just him speaking on behalf of the Westerosi patriarchy conventional wisdom, but yes. I'm sure it's also about his fear that Arya's going to suffer the same fate as Lyanna. Yes. As, as Again, as he said in, in Arya too, you look so much like her. She was beautiful and willful and dead before her time. So I think Ned's caught in between where he wants to indulge Arya. He wants her to be happy. On the other hand, he's kind of instinctively terrified that this is going to lead her to that same bloody fate. No, that's that's a terrific point. I think you're absolutely correct. I should have said in my summary that it also flows directly from Arya 2 because you have those moments from Catelyn 2, Arya 2, and Eddard 4 that flow right into this chapter. And this chapter bridges us towards different, not end states, but different plot points for these characters as they're going forward. But like you said, this is an oasis in the chapter because at the start of the chapter, you meet Pycelle, who's an asshole. And then at the end of the chapter, you meet Littlefinger, who is even more of an asshole. (laughs) Very true. Great point, sir. And I want to correct myself. I was saying that there's not much of a thematic link between the Arya scene and the rest of the chapter. But thinking about it more, there, there kind of is because he was trying to tell Arya how the world works in a way. And now Littlefinger is here to give his own kind of take on how the world works, hmm. his own his own spin on reality for Ned. Although he Good is, point. unlike Ned, he's he's outright lying. Oh, yeah. As we'll get into get, get into as we go. But yes, it's Ned turns up in his solar and there's the Mockingbird come to pay a visit. What he wants to convey to Ned is not just that he has found Sir Hugh and these other members of John Aaron's household that have stuck around King's Landing, but he also wants to impress upon Ned this paranoia about how he functions within the Red Keep and the city at large. And he's, tr- he's trying to convey to Ned that the walls have eyes, which is yeah. kind of this consistent motif in A Song of Ice and Fire. This uh, Varus brings it up uh, to Tyrion and Shay in A Clash of Kings when he's trying to impress upon them that he, he knew about Shay coming and there's no way they can hide from him. He talk- talks about the walls having eyes. It's made literal in Karth when Danny visits there in the Clash of Kings. One of Karth's three walls is covered with eyes. Hmm. So Littlefinger is trying to give Ned this idea that you, you know you can't, you're never alone. 
There's always someone watching. You can never relax. You always have to be on edge. That's that's the life Littlefinger lives, and that's the life he... I don't think he's trying to sincerely get Ned to live that way, but he's, <laughs> he's communicating to Ned that this is how one lives within King's Landing. You're absolutely right. There's something, though, that's a bit interesting here, and that, Ned, and that Littlefinger f- fingers two individuals who he says, oh, this person is spying for Varas, and this person is spying for the Queen. But the question I have is, are they actually spying for these individuals? We know that Varas's operandi primarily is to utilize what he calls his little birds, that is, children who have their tongues removed but know how to read and write, and they infiltrate through the walls and the tunnels that Magor the Cruel built into the Red Keep, and that's how he gains a lot of his information. He also has other spies as well, though, people like Morio, and perhaps some others as well, as we're going to find out. But Cersei Lannister, this is kind of an interesting point, Cersei Lannister, in A Feast for Crows, when we actually get her point of view, you don't get the sense that people are coming to her and being like, ah, well, you see, blah, 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 is going on. We get, obviously, we get Tyena Merriweather, who is her confidant and potentially a spy for Vars or Doran Martell. Both those theories have been thrown around. But beyond that, you don't actually get a lot of people coming to her and informing about things that are going on in King's Landing. She's very much isolated from the events. Now, I know there's a possibility that some of these people are coming to her off page, but it seems suspect, at the very least, that we don't see this in her, her main point of view of having, having spies come to her and informing her about what's going on within the castle itself. So I wonder whether Littlefinger is fabricating the information to Ned. It's entirely possible. We know that Cersei has her has made spies, but that's pretty much the like spying on Sansa, for example, and Tyena Merryweather, as you say. But yeah, there's never the implication that she is a spy network on par with Varys or Littlefinger. There's, kind of, there's multiple layers of irony with this little speech from Littlefinger. <laughs> as you say, he might be completely lying, just trying to be Ned to get paranoid, like... When a little finger points out a guy who he says is watching him and Ned looks and yes, the man does appear to be watching him. That could just be the power of suggestion there. <laughs> or the guy is just doing his job as a watchman. It could be just a complete coincidence. Littlefinger might be just pointing at random people, basically. Like you say, Varus primarily relies on his little birds for spies. And there's another irony there. that They're, they're looking out the window, pointing out, see, that person's watching it, that person's watching. Got to be careful of spies. But the real spies are literally at, behind them, at their back, in the yes. walls. They're looking in the wrong direction in terms of who is spying on them, which I'm sure Littlefinger is aware of to a, a large degree. Yes. So there's another layer of irony with that. Um, above all, though, it's interesting to come back to this chapter knowing how this plays out, because it's easy first time through to take it at face value that, you know, Ned is a babe in the woods and that he needs to learn from Littlefinger about how to operate in King's Landing. But if Ned had ignored Littlefinger's advice here, if he had just sent uh, Jory Cassell with the official seal of the hand of the king, you are summoned to appear before the hand of the king. Sir Hugh probably would have come. Yeah. Like he, he says to Jory that, you know, he's not going to be just brought along by some random guardsman uh, to <laughs> talk to the hand of the king. Arrogant as only a, a new made knight could be, I think is the line. If Ned had gone the official power route, he might have been able to crack this, this whole case open and find out some information about Sir Hugh. But because he doesn't do that, Sir Hugh is killed off by Gregor before Ned can find out anything. So I love how Martin executes that, where the actual takeaway is, no, Ned, you should be using the full extent of your office and the full extent of your powers. The problem is that you're not. And the fact that Littlefinger is trying to get you to stop using those powers is suggestive about where Littlefinger is coming from. Yeah, that is a theme, uh, that is a recurring theme that we're going to see in Ned, that he doesn't fully understand the amount of power that he wields as the Hand of the King, that he can summon Sir Hugh to the Vale to his Solar and be like, hey, what happened with John Aaron? And actually get some straight answers from him. Instead, he sends Jory Cassell there at the suggestion of Littlefinger. 
And I think Littlefinger had likely prepared Sir Hugh to be as difficult as possible to any envoy that Ned would send, and was only really seeming to help Ned here. And we are going to get pretty in-depth on Sir Hugh later on, because I think he is a fascinating, understudied, and under-analyzed character in A Song of Ice and Fire. He's very minor, obviously, so that, that makes sense. But there's a lot of interesting things about him and about his role and the potential that he was the poisoner of John Aaron himself at the behest of Littlefinger and Lysa. But I guess we'll talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, for sure, there's so many ironies with Littlefinger coming to Ned and with him saying like, ah, you know, check out this person, check out this person. These people are spying on you. When in fact, it's brought up at the end of Ned's arc in the Game of Thrones that Littlefinger was the one, if I'm not mistaken, who brought word to Cersei about the conspiracy that Ned was about to... Well, he had to be the one. Him and... Um, uh, and Janos Slint were the ones that came to to, to Cersei and let, let let and let her know that they were that Ned was planning on unseating her and Joffrey and imprisoning them on behalf of Stannis. Bing, Stannis mentioned exactly. Ding, we did it. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's yet another irony there. That Littlefinger's talking. Yeah, that's the Queen's spy. When in fact he ultimately is the Queen's spy on Ned. Not that he's. Yes in that room on her directive at that point, but when push comes to shove, as you say, at the climax of A Game of Thrones, Littlefinger sells Ned out to Cersei. So I think, you know, while obviously Littlefinger is a very effective player of the game in many respects, especially when it comes to finance, I think everything he says to Ned needs to be taken with a mountain-sized grain of salt, whether a little mountain or Sir Gregor, because Littlefinger hates Ned, and Littlefinger is working (laughs) toward his downfall, and Littlefinger does not want Ned to succeed, so... He's not giving him good advice. He's giving him advice that will steer Ned in the direction Littlefinger wants to go. I get the temptation to kind of take this speech from Littlefinger about paranoia and everyone has eyes on you out of context and say, like, this is the essence of the Game of Thrones. And it's not entirely incorrect. But I think we have to read that speech knowing that Littlefinger is not just objectively describing the situation in King's Landing. He is trying to get a particular reaction out of Ned. Yep, and he succeeds in getting that reaction on Ned because Ned's like, gods, gods be damned, that person does look like he's looking in on me. When, in fact, he just might be a regular guardsman who's just up in the the walls looking in because that's that's his job. But I think, unless you got anything else to add in, I think that takes us to our likes and dislikes for the chapter. Yes, indeed it does, sir. So I uh, mentioned it briefly, but during your uh, wonderful synopsis, but... Probably my favorite part of this of the chapter is this uh, little isolated flashback Ned has to when they learned that Bran was going to be alive, when it was going to survive, and had woken up. He he took his his daughters to the Godswood and had this vigil overnight, and, and they they slept and woke up, and Sansa talked about her dream with Bran smiling. It's it's just really lovely and heartwarming, and it's yeah. it's again this oasis sense, like you know things are about to get worse from here, worse than they even than they already are for the Starks, and they're these three people are going to be torn apart. Ned is going to be executed in front of his daughters. Arya and Sansa are going to be ripped apart into these very different horrible situations, but both horrible situations of Sansa as a a prisoner and victim of abuse and Arya on the road, starving and on the run. But for this one little moment, they they get to come together, not just as a family, but about family in in honor and love of (laughs) Bran that he's going to be okay. And especially since, you know, Sansa is so often characterized fairly or not as being separate from the rest of the Starks in some way. It's, It's wonderful that she has this line about seeing Bran smiling. And, yeah. and having this this moment of warmth and connection and togetherness, it's really good. It's, you, you, as we've said a couple times, you, you have to have those moments, or it doesn't mean anything when Ned gets his head chopped off in front of his kids. Like, yeah, for that for that to be emotional, you have to set this stuff up first. And I think Martin does a really good job with that. He certainly does. He, he builds that emotional resonance in among the star characters, 
but he also builds it for the reader too, so that when Ned Stark is executed, it means something to us. It means something to the people in the books themselves, but it also means something to the reader. We have all of this emotional backdrop, architecture, and foundation that Martin so wonderfully crafts into the narrative about Ned Stark and why his death matters. And then he just continues to build on it too, to, again, to bring up another Stannis mention, bing, we get, um, in, in A Dance with Dragons, we get his memory sustaining the cause of the Northmen who side with Stannis on their march on Winterfell because they're there to rescue the Ned's girl. And we get from John's point of view in A Dance with Dragons how Ned was a great guy. He cared about his people, but he also cared about his family too. And that those emotional stakes in his family make it much more powerful and sad for us as readers when Ned ultimately loses his head. Yeah, you have to, in order to believe that, in order for those moments in Dance with Dragons to hit home, you have to see Ned acting that way. You can't just be told what a great guy he was after the fact. You have to see him uh, with his daughters, uh, loving his family, having this vigil for, for his son. You have to see him bringing his servants to the, to the dinner table and talking with him and telling Rob to not have his men die for a stranger. You have to have him wishing more than anything he could see John again and talk with him on the wall. Otherwise, it would, it would feel like a retcon almost. Yes. None of that happened. And then in dance, we were being told what a great guy he was and how his, his vassals are willing to fight and die for his kids. You know, yeah. it, it hits it hits home when, when Big Bucket Wool talks about saving the Ned's girl because we understand why he cares that much. We Because we care that much, too. We feel it. Yeah, that's show, not tell. And that's what Martin does expertly throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. Yes, agreed. Uh, as for my dislike for the chapter, it comes at the very end. I've talked before in Edward Four and a couple other places about how some of Littlefinger's dialogue goes a little too far for me. It gets a little too Bond villain mustache twirling E for me. <laughs> and, uh, quote, distrusting me was the wisest thing you've done since you climbed on off your horse is one of those. Like, it's it's a cleverly written line. It's it's the kind of thing Littlefinger would say. But it, it, just, it just makes it all the more implausible that Ned puts all his eggs in this particular basket. Uh, yeah. by the end of his Game of Thrones arc. The fact that Littlefinger is just l- literally telling him to his face, hey, you probably shouldn't trust me. And, you know, it's, 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 there's wonderful payoff for it when Littlefinger shoves the dagger under Ned's chin and says, I did warn you not to trust me. That, that is a great moment, and it, you yeah. need this setup for that to make sense. I understand that, so this, is, this might be slightly unfair critique on my part. But I like the sense with Varys that he's choosing every word carefully, yes. and that's, that's something I appreciate about the, the conspiratorial mindset is the sense that, again, you're always on. Like little, That's what Littlefinger's trying to communicate to Ned, right? Like, you always got to be on in King's Landing. He's not particularly on if he's just directly telling Ned, <laughs> you really shouldn't trust me. Not, not a fatal flaw. Again, it's set up for a good moment, but it's, it's, again, one of the reasons I find Littlefinger to not be the most interesting of the prominent cast. Yeah, I think you mentioned before, and I agree, that Varys is much more of an interesting conspirator. And I think you're right in that you pinpoint why he's much more interesting and that his motivations are obscured and that he's carefully choosing his words in order to convey not necessarily the truth, but the things that he wants wants people to believe about his aims, his motivations. And yeah, I do agree that that line is a little bit over the top. I think it's I think it's in in the first season of Game of Thrones and. If I'm remembering correctly, I was like, oh, well, this guy's saying don't trust me. He must be, at some level, he must be saying, you know, he must be imparting some sort of life lesson to Ned. And then to have him betray Ned at the end came as a shock to me, which I know I'm, I'm dumb and stupid and, and ugly and everything like that for not knowing that Littlefinger was going to betray Ned from the very beginning before I, before I saw it portrayed on screen in season one of Game of Thrones. But at the same time, when, re- when you're rereading, I think, and, and I think this might be, this might be kind of an implicit criticism of, of perhaps like rereading and, and 
maybe even implicit criticism of this podcast is that we look at these lines and we're like, yeah, that line doesn't necessarily make as much sense, but it doesn't make as much sense because we're going through this book now for like the 12,000th time, you know, but that's true. Yeah, but that's I, a good I don't know. Point. Yeah, but I, I, I like the line at the same time. I also feel it is very much over the top. I, I, that's a very good point, sir. It's different your first time through. On the other hand, Martin writes these novels in such a way that really seems to encourage and demand reread. Yes. In, in a number of aspects. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how much of an excuse that can be for the line. But yeah, it, it's not terrible. It just it, it just stands out to me as, as exemplifying why I find Littlefinger's dialogue less interesting than Varus's. Sure. It, again, it's, it's, it's quality setup. When I think about Varus's dialogue with Ned, I think about Varus saying... Why was John Aaron killed? Asking questions. And then he slipped out the door. <laughs> like, that's, ooh, that's tense. That's interesting. I want to know more. Whereas with Littlefinger, I might have gone too far in saying it gives away the betrayal because it's easy to look at Littlefinger and just think, oh, he's just being an asshole. He's just being a petty dick to Ned. He's ultimately going to be on his side. I think that's that's an easy interpretation to come away with your first time through. So I might be overselling it. But yeah, it's, it's just for me, it, it comes off a little clunky compared to the rest of the dialogue. I don't think you're overselling it. I think you're you're spot on. I just well, thank you, sir. I, I just think you know uh, us as rereaders were kind of like, yeah, well, obviously Littlefinger's going to betray Ned because we know that Littlefinger's going to betray Ned after yeah, that's definitely true. Times. I I can't remove that filter. I would I would love to to press a button and read this stuff for the first time, but sadly I cannot. Yeah, we wouldn't have a podcast then. That wouldn't work. <laughs> Good point. It would be the the. Yeah, the artificial first-time read podcast. <laughs> right, exactly. So some of the things that I like about this chapter, I'm, I'm only going to mention one thing that I like about this chapter, and then I love that Arya's that Sansa moment. I did, I did reference that earlier, and I like that it's not said with anger, jealousy, or, or anything that kind of defines some of the earlier Arya-Sansa dynamic. It's kind of a straight-up all well and good for Sansa, but that's just not for me. And it really, I really love the fact that Arya is taking control of her destiny here. The problem, though, is she may have agency in her own life, ultimately or believe that she does, but will she have it forever? It's going to be a question, right? I mean, that's the, the dynamic that we're going to be exploring in A Feast for Crows with um, her as a faceless man and potentially undertaking faceless men training is whether she actually has destiny or whether she is a pawn of a greater force and they are manipulating her to do things that she may not want to do. But I do think her hiding needle and ensuring that it wasn't tossed into the river ensures wasn't tossed into the Bravosi Harbor ensures that she will return to her Stark side and that she will regain some of her agency that she might be losing as a result of her faceless men training. Yeah, that's a great point. Arya's, you know, struggle with how much control she has over her own destiny is obviously a huge part of her story. You know, not not just something we talk about as readers, but something that she struggles with, like throughout a storm of swords when she's with the Brotherhood and is constantly struggling over whether she trust them or not, whether she's willing to just kind of go along for the ride or whether she needs to run off by herself again. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. In terms of my dislike for the chapter, it's Pycelle. He's a real fucking dummy here in that he unintentionally but not wholly frames Cersei for killing John Aaron. It reads clumsy on Pycelle's part, maybe not necessarily on Martin's part, but especially when you take into account how Pycelle helped ensure that John Aaron would die, as we talked about earlier from A Clash of Kings. Mm-hmm. It's cool that he tries to frame Varys, but to what end? Maybe George R. R. Martin hadn't quite figured out Pycelle's role in John Aaron's death until he needed a dramatic moment when Tyrion Shag interrogate Pycelle in A Clash of Kings. It's not altogether clear here. And I think that's something you had referenced earlier, is that the, the, the role of Cersei and Pycelle in John Aaron's death does kind of come across a little bit weirdly in that we're not sure how to interpret their actions. They wanted him to die. Pycelle being a real dumbass does not necessarily do the best is, is not necessarily Martin's best work. Although I do like him in A Feast for Crows when he becomes the smartest person in Cersei's Council, as we've referenced in, in earlier episodes. 
Yeah, exactly. Pycelle is fun because of his pretentiousness and because he becomes the the last man standing in A Feast for Crows. As I've said before, I appreciate the kind of joke on Martin's part that the least effective conspirator is the one who ends up briefly running the government, which is something that doesn't happen for... Varus and Littlefinger don't get to do that, but Pycelle no. briefly does. And I do, I do think that's great. But yeah, I agree. He's uh, ineffective in a way that stops being interesting and starts resembling a plot hole at a certain point. I, I get the sense that Martin was in love with the twist of John Aaron's death, that it was actually Lysa and Littlefinger. And that is a great twist. And you go back and you can see all the little hints that Lysa was responsible. But on the flip side of that is, then you've got this kind of dangling plot thread where Pycelle knew that Cersei wanted John Aaron dead, but maybe she didn't, but she really should have because he knew the truth. <laughs> it ends up... It ends up making Cersei look not just sloppy, which she is, but passive, which she yes. usually is not. So that's that's kind of difficult to wrap my head around. I get, I, and I think, again, this is just fallout, a necessary fallout for, for this twist that Martin wanted to have that was actually Lysa and Littlefinger. And that makes Cersei and Pycelle make a little less sense than, the, than they would otherwise. Yes, you are absolutely correct, is that... Cersei and Pycelle are conspiring, seemingly, at some level. We're not entirely sure. But the funny thing is, is that the conspiracy, the, the true conspiracy is not necessarily who killed John Aaron, because as we know from later books, Cersei didn't kill John Aaron. The true conspiracy, though, is the truth that John Aaron discovered before he died. Yes, and moving into the foreshadowing and groundwork laid down in, in this chapter... Of course, the major foreshadowing work is has to do with the truth that John Aaron discovered before he died. There's the quote, the seed is strong, a famous kind of arc words that we use to title this episode, which uh, Lysa interprets as being about Sweet Robin. Which, you know, now that I say this, does Lysa know about the twincest? Uh, it just I, struck me that we, we don't know about that, do we? No, we don't. It doesn't seem that she does, but though it's possible, I guess. Yeah, it just struck me that, yeah, I, I was wondering is like, is, is she genuinely interpreting the seed is strong to mean Sweet Robin, or is she covering that up? But yeah, given that it's Lysa and her kind of distorted view of her son, she probably genuinely means that and, and thinks that John Aaron was, was talking about Sweet Robin. So yeah, but of course, the actual, the actual meaning of the seed is strong is referring to Robert's all-powerful Baratheon sperm. That whoever he sleeps with, Varys has that whole speech about, you know, whether it's butter or honey or raven, whatever the color of the mother's hair is. The, the kids always come out with Robert's coal black hair and often the rest of his looks as well. And that is in Martin's kind of necessarily simplified genetics, the giveaway that Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella are not actually his children. Yes. Even before we get into those details, even before that becomes the explicit focus of Ned's plot, just the, the line, the seed is strong, and Pycelle mentioning that Lord John was interested in this book about lineage, that sets up the stakes of Ned's investigation. It's about the fin- familial line and everything that goes with it. Yes. That's going to continue when he discovers Gendry at Tobomot's Forge and, you know, actually looks Robert's bastard right in the eyes. I think we can be fairly certain or at least suspect that Pycelle is aware of the twincest. So I do, again, wonder why Pycelle is telling Ned this line, the seed is strong. At the same juncture, I do kind of scratch my head at John Aaron saying, ah, the seed is strong. Like that is that is the line because it's so it's intentionally ambiguous, right? You would think that John Aaron on his deathbed would say something like, Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen are not your children, Robert. But instead he doesn't. He just says the seed is strong. And that leads, of course, it does lead into the investigation that Ned undertakes in A Game of Thrones. But at the same time, it is very ambiguous. But I, I do like, I, I like that that aspect of it for sure. And our introduction to Gendry, I think he's one of the more interesting minor characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, totally. And yeah, I think it's 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 deliberately ambiguous and it's a little unrealistic that Lord John would say that. Part of me wonders if Martin should have like somehow had the poison have a hallucinatory aspect or like have the poison somehow mess with John Aaron's mind. 
Yes. So that he couldn't directly say it. Maybe that would have made that a little more plausible. But what I do like is the way Martin hides the truth from Ned about what the seed is strong is actually referring to. There's like he could be talking about Sweet Robin, as Lysa brings up. There's an irony in that he's saying the seed is strong. But the revelation that's leading to is that the seed was not strong, a.k.a. non-existent with Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella. So that's the kind of switcheroo that Ned's not looking for. Like, yeah, it leads him to Gendry. He can figure out the seed is strong as referring to the King's Bastards. But the actual important truth is the the absence of that, the reverse. I think that's a, a clever way Martin has of hiding what's really going on there. Yes, and kind of in the same vein, the book that Ned asks after Pycelle is the Book of Lineages, is where he finally puts it all together from the Seed of Strong to looking at the different children that came as a result of the Baratheons and knowing and finally seeing that the only children that Robert can bear are are black of hair is, is the way it's put in, in Game of Thrones later later on there. But but yeah, another another instance where Pycelle is you kind of scratch your head and you're like, Pycelle, why the fuck did you not say sorry, the book is lost, Ned, I just can't find it anymore. But no, instead you actually have the book delivered to Ned, which of course then ignites Ned's investigation of of Robert's bastards and Cersei's true children and their father. He's not the least bit like that drunken old king, as Sansa will say. Yes. I do love that moment. But yeah, speaking of Pycelle, uh, his hatred for Varys comes up a couple times in the series. He's suspicious and dislikes him a lot. and That might be rooted in his their time together under the Mad King. Obviously, at the end, we know Varus and Pycelle disagreed vehemently over whether or not to let Tywin into the city. Uh, Pycelle said yes, Varus said no, Aerys listened to Pycelle, and we saw how that went. Yes. So maybe this antipathy is rooted in that struggle, that standoff over what was going to happen to the Mad King, and Pycelle kind of ultimately revealing his Lannister loyalties. Regardless of why Pycelle feels this way, it's it's ironic that even though he's lying about Varus being responsible for John Aaron's death, even though he doesn't really seem to know what Varus is up to, he is right to be afraid of Varus because Varus ends up killing him at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Who knows if Martin had that in mind at this point, but I think it's 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 nice that Pycelle gets proven right in a way that he doesn't really expect. You're right in that Pycelle is afraid of Varus, and he has good reason to be afraid of Varus. I mean, Varus controls the intelligence operation within King's Landing, and Varus and Pycelle, like you said, were both on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of advising errors and what to do when the Lannister army showed up outside of King's Landing. That conversation from Jamie's perspective in A Storm of Swords then also shows us that Pycelle is a Lannister toady and is a Tywin Lannister fanboy. And um, <laughs> yes, yeah, that's that's good. That, that that's good stuff. And I, I'm 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 with you in that I'm not sure that Martin necessarily had the idea that Varys would murder Pycelle in mind here. But it's a great payoff at the end of A Dance of Dragons when Varys does indeed murder. Pycelle in the epilogue. And murdered him for his rare streak of competence, which is another great irony. Pycelle is so rarely effective at anything, but being effective is what Varus kills him for, that he and Kevon are, are doing a decent job of getting the government back together under Lannister rule, which of course Varus does not want. Yes, indeed. Another character in the small council is Sir Barristan Selmy as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. And we do get some interesting foreshadowing here in that Ned Stark seems to very much respect Sir Barristan Selmy in his honor. And he, we get that sort of scene in reverse when Barristan Selmy plays a role in talking up Ned Stark. Come, I think it Dance with Dragons, right? I think it's a dance. I'm not sure exactly when it is. It must be a dance because that, that, that's when he is kind of exposed as himself. Yes. So yeah, Danny is like lumping the Lannisters in with the Starks as, as all, you know, the usurper's dogs and... Barristan insists on making this distinction and points out to Danny that Ned tried to spare her life 
And that's, you know, another another payoff for this kind of Ned Barristan alliance is Barristan is the only one to stand with Ned during that debate over whether or not to assassinate Daenerys. Barristan is the only other one to say no, along with Ned. They're the kind of sweet emotional connection between those two men that I very much like. Yeah, you're right about that. It's something that we I talked about in the Girls Gone Canon episode about how there are some actually pretty strong comparisons between Barristan and Ned and their different short-lived handships for their... One Ned in King's Landing and Barristan in Marine at the end of A Dance with Dragons. And I do think that is a connection that Martin is making a bit subtly at points, but they're not necessarily one for one, but they do t- kind of work. And it does kind of work that they are allies, at least at this juncture in the story in the Game of Thrones. Yes, indeed. And years from now, when we get to Barristan's dance chapters, we will point out all those wonderful parallels. Absolutely. But, of course, Barristan ultimately leaves King's Landing and this small council behind to serve the Dragon Queen. And speaking of dragons, uh, there's this... Wonderful little bit of imagery in that scene I was talking about earlier, the vigil in the godswood. Quote, When dawn broke over the city, the dark red blooms of dragon's breath surrounded the girls where they lay. You know, obviously it's always important to look out for not only dragon imagery in A Song of Ice and Fire, because it tends to be very meaningful, but also the connections between the ice and fire sides of the title. A connection between Starks and dragons, I think, is always interesting to to take note of when it comes up. And this is one of those situations when you have the the imagery of dragon's breath uh, surrounding uh, Stark girls. What I think is interesting is, you know, this image stands out and it might be foreshadowing of something, but there's some ambiguity as to what it actually refers to. I mean, is this saying that one or both sisters are going to be victims of dragon? fire or are they going to be like spared and protected by the dragons given that this is coming in the context of a positive healing moment for the Stark clan is there a link being made here imagery wise between the dragons and Bran's rebirth and rejuvenation I mean uh, we on our episode on Bran 4 of course we had the delightful nuclear bomb here as a guest and he was talking about his great theory that a Bran will warg into a dragon to let Tyrion ride in order to kind of pay Tyrion back for the gift of a saddle so Bran could ride in this first book so maybe there's a connection being linked there where you have imagery of dragons coming up just as the Starks are talking about Bran smiling and being reborn and rejuvenated. Maybe part of that process of rebirth and rejuvenation will involve connecting Bran to a dragon. We shall see. Yeah, I, I, I'm up in the air. I, I don't think that Arya and Sansa will be burned by dragon fire, but I guess I can't I rule so it either. out. And this passage kind of allows that possibility to exist in my mind. I don't want to see that happen for sure. Possible. I, I like the I like the, the latter theory that you presented, that it's all... Uh, about linking between the dragons and Bran's rebirth and rejuvenation. I, I'm going to go with that because that one sounds more appealing to me as, a, as an individual. I agree. I think the tone of this scene is very sweet. Like like they're, the Starks are shedding all of the, the horror and like loss and disgust they've experienced over their last few chapters. Their disillusionment and, and despair and kind of being rejuvenated in that moment. And that's when the dragon's breath imagery shows up. So yeah, I think if, if, if this image really means anything at all, I think it speaks to a positive connection between the Starks and the dragons, not a negative one. Yeah, I sure hope so. But to kind of ground us back into King's Landing, there is perhaps, and I'm going to I'm going to go way out on a limb here that I don't normally go out on. There is perhaps some very subtle hinting that John Aaron was poisoned by the tears of Lise. Grand Maester Pycelle says, "Quote: The weather had been hot, and the hand often iced as wine, which can upset the digestion." And then this kind of leads Pycelle into saying that John Aaron grew sick shortly thereafter. It's a seeming throwaway line, but maybe not. The taste of the Tears of Lys is called, quote-unquote, sweet as water, later in A Feast for Crows in Arya's chapters. So then you, you get this water, ice, Tears of Lys poison. You kind of get me right. They kind of taste the yes, same sir. way, you know, that sort of thing. But let's get even deeper and perhaps even weirder. One of the curious connections between Lysa, 
Lice, this the city of Lice or Lys, and the Tears of Lys is what's known as Alyssa's Tears in the Vale. In A Feast for Crows, Sansa thinks when she had first come to the Eyrie, there had been the, the murmur of Alyssa's Tears as well, but the waterfall was frozen now. Now, I'm probably overthinking this, so I'll admit that up front, but Alyssa's Tears, Lys's Tears over a marriage to John Aaron, and her tears over Lord Aaron's decision to send Robert and Aaron away to Stannis combined with the fact that the Tears of Lys killed John Aaron perhaps makes this a very, if not the most subtlest of clues that John Aaron was poisoned by the Tears of Lys. Again, it is very much out on the limb here. I don't know that Martin necessarily intended this, but I did kind of pick up on that, that it might be very, very, very subtle foreshadowing of the actual cause of John Aaron's death. I'm with you, buddy. I think that might well be what Martin intended. He does love his wordplay, and if you look at the, just the L-Y-S letters in common, between Lysa and Alyssa's tears and the tears of Lys, that I think that's Martin having some fun uh, and doing a little foreshadowing work. I think it's so subtle that a first-time reader can't possibly be expected to put it together. But I think once you've been through the series a few times and once you've been through some like LML-style theorizing with wordplay <laughs> and imagery, then I think that stands out to you. So I'm with you, buddy. I think that's intentional. It's all your fault, LML, man. You got me thinking about the series in a whole different way, and this is the result. I'm like in way out on a limb territory, so it's all your fault, dude. Damn you with your moon meteors. <laughs> you, you can't get away from that. But let's talk a little bit more about the poisoning of John Aaron and who was actually responsible for the death of John Aaron. As we know, as readers, we know that Lysa Aaron, at the behest of Lord Littlefinger, was the one who put the Tears of Lease into John Aaron's wine. There's also the potential, too, that Sir Hugh of the Vale had a played a part as well, that he was convinced by Lysa to put the Tears of Lease into the wine itself. But let's talk a little bit about where we are right now in A Game of Thrones, because right now on the Not A Cast podcast, it's mystery time. Except because you guys are all rereaders, you know the conclusion. But it's not about the destination. It's the journey, right? Right? Whatever. So sure. let's imagine you're a first-time reader. Go back to, you know, 2000-whatever, or the 1990s, if you're listening to this podcast and you were reading the books back in the, in the 90s. Good on you if you're doing that. At this, at this point, who are you thinking did John Aaron in? Be honest. It's Cersei, right? And it, it's okay if you, if, if you thought that at the, at the beginning. I certainly did. You don't have to feel shame for it because George wanted you to think this way. He wanted you to come to the conclusion that Cersei was behind the poisoning of John Aaron, but he wasn't. Yeah, I do love the way Martin sets all this up. You know, you, you have Catelyn quoting Lysa saying, the Lannisters poisoned him, the queen. And that, again, that's the same phrase that Ned uses when he's talking about who was going to kill Robert in the melee. The Lannisters, the general statement, and then the queen specifically. <laughs> you know, you have this impression constantly given that, yeah, the Lannisters might be a, a group conspiracy, but that Cersei is at the center of things and Cersei is the one driving the action, so to speak. We're certainly not given to like Cersei at first. No. We have that whole conversation Bran overhears that indicates that Cersei and Jaime are conspiring against all the other actors in King's Landing. And uh, the very fact that they react so disappointed pointedly to Ned being the hand is kind of an implication from the author that they're involved in this process. Like, you get the hint that, oh, they got rid of John Aaron and now they're disappointed with the results. They were expecting Jamie to be hand, as Cersei says. So, you know, obviously that doesn't prove that they were in behind the poisoning of John Aaron, because they weren't. But as a first-time reader, that is a strong implication, the fact that they're talking about what they want done with the handship and how they're conspiring against other players in King's Landing. You're not given any reason to not think it's them not think it's Cersei specifically. And I think that's that's a, a great trick Martin does where he never proves it's Cersei because it's not Cersei, but he gives you just enough information to convince yourself that it's her. Yeah, you're right. And I love that 
scene or I love those lines where Ned is asking Pycelle in this chapter about where was the queen when Robert was visiting yes. John Aaron's bed bedside. Oh, well, she was she was away, you know, which is not not suspicious at all. Of course, that the queen was far away when when uh, when John Aaron fell ill and was at his bedside and, and, and was on his deathbed. That is also pointing the reader towards Cersei being the one who poisoned John Aaron when in fact that she didn't. You know, Cersei's words back from A Game of Thrones from Bran's second chapter is his wife is Lady Aaron's sister. It's a wonder Lysa was not here to greet us with her accusations. You know, as the reader, you're like, oh my God, they don't want Lysa to be here because, you know, they obviously poisoned John Aaron. But at the same time, you know, if you read it kind of as is, they are just accusations and they're false accusations. And, but this is the same sort of motif would have existed where Lysa's accusations against Cersei and Jaime would have set up the conflict. And so they don't want that conflict right now between the Starks and they don't want Robert being told of the the accusation that Lysa would bring against them. Later on in A Clash of Kings in, in Tyrion's first chapter, where Tyrion sort of asked Cersei who murdered Jon Arryn and Cersei yanked her hand back. How should I know? Well, you know, as a reader, we're, we're like, yeah, well, she's obviously lying here, right? Because we have all that damning dialogue back in, in Bran's second Game of Thrones chapter. We have Pycelle saying that Cersei was far away and was you know, not at John Aaron's bedside like she was trying to run away from the scene of the crime. And then you have Stannis's suspicions in the Clash of Kings prologue about that damnable Lannister woman had Lord Aaron poisoned before it could be done. And later on saying the same sort of thing to Catelyn, where do you think that John Aaron died by happenstance, you purblind fool? He's talking about Renly, who is a purblind fool. Cersei had him poisoned for fear he would reveal her. Lord John had been gathering certain proofs, dot, dot, dot. You know, as, as a reader, we're like, yeah, we... Obviously, Cersei poisoned John Aaron, and she has a motivation to poison John Aaron because John Aaron and Stannis are investigating the truth about the parentage of Robert's children and what children were actually born of him and what children weren't. But there's a subtle and more fulfilling culprit behind the death of John Aaron, and that those two individuals being Lysa and Lord Littlefinger. Yeah, I love that you brought up that scene between Tyrion and Cersei in his first chapter in The Clash of Kings, because... He never gets an answer to that question. She slaps him a few times. There's that great passage where it's like, he says something nasty, she slapped him. He says something nasty, she slapped him. He says something <laughs> nasty, she slapped him. It's, it's a great passage and really gets across how Tyrion and Cersei's dynamic works. But Martin pulls the same trick when Ned and Cersei are talking about that same topic. Cersei offers him offers him alliance and sex, and Ned asks her if she made the same offer to John Aaron. And then she <laughs> slaps him. Again, the slap. Yes. So that's 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 Martin's technique in these scenes where characters get close to the truth is that Cersei freaks out and then the conversation immediately moves on. And like you're focused on something else and you get distracted and you don't notice that the question was never really answered. Yeah. And that while Cersei is certainly acting suspicious, there's no actual confirmation that she did this. She could have, she maybe should have, <laughs> but a little finger and Lysa beat her to the punch. And yeah, I do love how Martin allows you to think that while distracting you from the fact that it hasn't been proven. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so Martin kind of hits us over the head with, ah, it was Cersei and the Lannisters who did it. But at the same time, he is also subtly seeding the twist that it was Lysa and not the Lannisters who poisoned the hand. And we get this from this chapter itself where Pycelle is saying, quote, If an old man may be forgiven his blunt speech, let me say that grief can derange even the strongest and most disciplined of minds. And the Lady Lysa was never that. Since her stillbirth, she has seen enemies in every shadow, and the death of her lord husband left her shattered and lost. 
that's the person whose word Catelyn and Ned have been trusting this whole time. It's insane, really, if you think about it, that they are essentially relying on a crazy lady to undergird the entire reason why Ned Stark decided to take on the handship and become the Hand of the King in order to investigate who actually murdered John Aaron. It's true. I mean, it all really comes back to Lysa's word. And I think part of how Martin does a good job at hiding what's really going on here is that we haven't met Lysa yet. And that we don't meet her until well into the book. So we have this image of Cersei as this uh, nasty elitist woman that we've met that we don't like, who is complicit to and part of a tossing brand from the window. With Lysa, we're getting word that she's not exactly a fierce, disciplined conspirator, <laughs> but we haven't met her to see the evidence of that yet. So naturally, we're going to lean towards Cersei because she's the devil we know at this point. It makes more sense to blame her. But yeah, you can see Martin dropping those little hints, and that's something we'll... We'll get into more as we go when when Catelyn thinks to herself, huh, Lysa named the Cersei in her letter, but now she seems certain that Tyrion did it. Yeah. She, she gets so close to figuring out what's really going on, but both she and I think at that point the reader just says, oh, Lysa's just crazy. She's just blaming everyone at once. And we're not thinking to ourselves, no, Lysa is deliberately framing the Lannisters. Yeah, she does a good job at it, really. I mean, she essentially sets the Stark and Lannister conflict into motion at the behest again of Littlefinger, because I think that he's the real brains behind the operation, and, and Lysa is a pawn of his greater scheme to set Westeros into a war footing and into the chaos that he can benefit the most from. I, I, I think that's a great way that Martin writes is that he obscures the true culprit behind things. You know, we talked about in again that Girls Gone Ken episode about who is really the harpy. As as readers, it's like ah, it's it's obviously Hysters Oloric, but when you gotta get back. To it, he also is seeding the true culprit, who is not explicitly revealed the same way that Lys is revealed to have killed John Aaron, but is most definitely, in my opinion, going to be the Green Grace. That is Galaza Galare. Same sort of motif works here for Lysa as being the person really responsible for the death of John Aaron. Yeah, it's a really well handled uh, twist in terms of how Martin kind of dribs out the information. As, again, as we said, it kind of leaves Cersei making less sense once you find out that it was actually Lysa, but. Ultimately, that's doesn't really detract much from the sheer impact of the revelation once it hits in. I can't wait for us to get to Sansa's seven, a storm of swords. Obviously, it's a long way off, but that scene where Lysa spills her guts is just so wrenching and so impactful. Tears, tears, tears. But that's not what you said when you asked me to put the tears into John Aaron's wine. It's just Boom. so good. Yeah. It's that moment that makes your hair on your on your arm stand up because you're like, oh my god! Exactly. Like that's it's it's a great comeuppance for the both the reader and for for Sansa, and you know you kind of think back to Ned and you're like, man, this guy died not for nothing, but he died partially for a lie. Absolutely. It's it's, it's just it's just damn tragic. It is that. But I think that about wraps us up for a Game of Thrones Edward Five. Thank you all very very much for listening to us. And thank you again for those of you who are contributing to our Patreon and listening to our episode of Atlantis. We appreciate all the feedback everywhere and anywhere we can get it. Absolutely. We can always find us at our email, notacastasoiaf at gmail.com if you want to shoot us a line. You can hit us up on Twitter at notacastasoiaf. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already, patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiaf. Personally speaking, you can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brennan B. Fish on Twitter, Brennan B. Fish on Reddit. And my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. So, thanks again for listening to us. Join us next time as John meets and protects his new best friend, Samwell Tarly, the fucking Slayer Man. Can't wait to do that in a Game of Thrones 
John 4. Yes, indeed. One of John's most important supporting character at first, but then, of course, he eventually becomes a protagonist in his own right. So I'm highly looking forward to discussing George R. R. Martin's personal stand-in, Samuel Tarly. <laughs> Gonna be so much fun. So, we will see you guys next week. Take care, everybody. <laughs>